Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. This is Episode 7, Chapters 28 through 31. Chapter 28, Guns and Piggy Banks I went to Selby, South Dakota, where David and Butch Feist had gone to elementary school. The first people I ran into had been neighbors of the Feist over 50 years ago. A town celebration was going on that night, so there was quite a crowd. No, 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 no. They were nice neighbors. I had a little bank about that big piggy bank thing. Yeah. And I had all silver coins in it. I come home and it was gone. So I asked my mother, I said, if she cleaned, it was down in the basement in my bedroom. And she said, no. And I told her, I said, well, uh, my bank, you know, stuff was gone. And then she said, no. And then a little while later, she came out. Uh, she said, I seen the two vice boys come out of the house. Your house? Yeah. And, Mama, yeah. yeah. So mother went over to Gladys, I think yeah. her name Gladys, was. yeah. And approached Gladys about it. And then she questioned the boys, I guess. Yeah, she did. And that, no, 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 no. So then... And I had to go over to 3B Hardware, and I went over there, and, and uh, Betty Henning, yes. and I, I don't know how the conversation was, but anyway, she said, yeah, the Fife Boys come in there, and, and they bought a BB gun and a bunch of BBs, and they paid me in all silver coins. Oh! That's where they went. So I went home and told my mother. She went over again to Gladys. Nope. Well, two, three days later, Gladys came over. And she said, yeah, the boys did it because she found that my bank, uh, whatever, it was cut open. And I, I don't know how much I had, but anyway, Gladys paid me X amount of dollars that I thought I had. While corresponding with David Feist, I would occasionally tell him about some of the things I was learning about him. David Feist told me several times that I was basically getting fed inaccurate information. He called it BS. He made it clear that he felt that some people would say just about anything to be part of something, to be part of a story. Like when I told him about a phone call I had with a guy named Bill, who went to elementary school with David in Selby. He remembered David pretty much like any of us would remember our own classmates in fifth grade, playing football on the playground and in the classroom and getting into harmless mischief. Yes, I remember David. I heard he went to prison. A bunch of us guys, there was a farm place just west of Selby. He had to go down a gravel road, and we got down there, and there was big haystack made out of hay, hay bales, and we decided we were going to hollow it out and make a fort out of it, and that's what we did, and of course the farmer caught us, 
and we all caught holy hell for it, you know. We had to agree to come back the next day and put all the bales back that we pulled out of the stack, you know. And David Feist was with you? Yep, but he didn't come back to put the bales back. At which point Bill says he got a whooping at home. That's okay, my dad was the superintendent. I kind of expected it. And what did David Feist say about this story? The hay bale story was pure BS, he said. Laughable. So, when I learned this story about the piggy bank and the coins and the BB gun, I was fully prepared for David Feist to tell me that it was the most laughable and absurd story ever, concocted for the purposes of someone wanting to get attention. But, to my surprise, no, it's a true story. David Feist could not quite remember all the details, but he confirmed it. Yes, it's a true story, and David Feist admitted to it fully, without hesitation. Perhaps his own words describe this attitude best. I came into this hellhole a young kid, and this is where I learned to be the person that I am. All that a person has in these places is his word. It doesn't matter if you're the most dirt-poor guy from the streets of some inner city or one of the jerks off of Capitol Hill. Everyone is the same in here. All a person is judged on here is his word. A person that has any kind of character flaw thief, a rat, or even a liar, they are treated badly. A person that is stand-up and dependable, that gives his word and stands by it, that is honorable and trustworthy, is a guy well-respected in these places. I have never been a bullshit liar, but I have done things in this life that I truly regret. The one thing that I truly regret is the hurt that I caused people because of the crime I committed against the Zicks. I never got the opportunity to tell Jerry or Nancy how truly sorry I was before they passed away. Hell, I know that that would have been a small consolation, but maybe, just maybe, it would have been a little help. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. My name is Bill Huffman. And I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today, wherever you get your favorite shows. Chapter 29, California Dreaming Sometime around 1968, the Feists left South Dakota for California with their mother's new husband, Don Dyson. Don was an artist. He painted nature and landscape paintings. For a while, the family traveled in a modified school bus, and Dyson earned a living painting around the country and selling his landscapes at campgrounds, rest stops, cafes, and other places. David Feist remembers Don Dyson. 
Dyson was a really good man. We never had so much as an argument. I have nothing but respect for the man and his memory. I don't know how my mom ever landed him as a husband, but I think it was maybe the best thing, not just for her, but for the whole family. You can still find his mural paintings here and there around the Midwestern United States in small coffee shops and bars. In California, the kids attended high school in Tiunga, just north of Los Angeles. David Feist told me that it was here that he was first introduced to drugs. His sister, Patty, whom he was very close to, gave him some mini whites, otherwise known as speed, when he was about 14 years old. David Feist had a high school sweetheart in California, a girl named Gina. But he joined the Army during his junior year, and while he was away, Gina and her family moved to Oregon. In fact, she moved to Cottage Grove, which you may remember is the town where the boys bought a new car on July 14, 1976, when they were on the run. I asked David Feist if they had visited Gina in Cottage Grove when they were on the run, but he said no. He thought perhaps she had moved away by then. I was in the Army from February of 72 to the end of 74. I was stationed in West Germany. While I was there, I traveled all over Europe. My intentions were to stay over there once released, but it didn't quite work out that way. I had a drug problem during my stint in the Army, and that led to my discharge. David Feist recalls that his mother was a snoop. She would go through our things a lot. When I went overseas, I was sending money back every month for her to put up, so when I came back, I'd be able to get a car. She never did put it up for me. I found out later she spent it all. Whenever I brought a girl home, she'd always tell me crap like, she isn't good enough for you. When I returned home from Europe, I went to Oregon to see Gina. Her stepdad came and told me that I wasn't welcome. I didn't find out until a few months later what happened. My mom had called the stepdad and told him that I was wanted by the German police. I never did find out why she did it. It was all BS. I wasn't wanted by the German police. Hell, my drug use was an army issue, not a German issue. But that was mom. No girl was good enough. In April of 75, David got arrested in California for passing a small amount of marijuana and four hits of LSD to an undercover cop. He was given one year in the L.A. County Jail and three years probation. David Feist came to the Zeeland and Selby areas about two or three months before the Zicks were killed. At the same time, Greg Huber was just returning to the area from Florida, where he had failed basic training in the Navy. And so, in the late spring of 76, these three men convened. David was just off of a discharge from the Army and a jail term. Sebastian Feist had been expelled from Zeeland School. Gregory Huber sent home from the Navy with his tail between his legs. They were three young men at a fork in the road, and they had most of their entire adult lives ahead of them. While standing in the yard of the Feist Farm or the Huber Farm, or on Main Street in Zeeland or Selby or Mowbridge, they could look out in just about any direction and spread out before them for miles and miles and miles was an open and limitless unobstructed path to an infinite number of futures. Exactly which path, which future to choose, that was completely up to them. I got a good heart, I got a bad hand, I got a weight hanging round on my neck. It's what I'm loving, it's what I'm leaving, it's what I know and I don't know yet. I walk a straight line, but I'm drifting, I want to roam, but my path ain't set. 
Chapter 30, No Different Than You I wrote to David Feist and asked him to please tell me his story. The following is what he sent me. You wanted me to tell you my story? I'm no different than you are. I may drink and become violent when you don't. But is it because I'm a bad person, or is it because I can't control myself when I drink? Well, I'm a happy drunk when I drink, but I'm also controlled by a short fuse. Who in this world has not done something when drunk that they wish they hadn't? When I was going to court on this crime, I was scared to death. I put on this fake bravado, and I know that it didn't do anything but hurt me. The court said that they find the defendant to be a psychopath. By that we mean that he is amoral, that he is governed by egocentricity, and that he is unable to establish any meaningful relationships. I dispute this claim. First off, I have morals. My word is good, I'm not a liar or a rat. I have never hit a woman or abused a woman or child. I have never stolen from family or friends. Second, I dispute the finding that I am egocentric. Granted, I'm happy with who I am and I do like myself. That's not saying that I've not done things that I regret and that I wouldn't change things in the past if only I could. Overall, I'm happy with what I've done with my life. As for meaningful relationships, I'm still close to people I've known all my life. The courts never sent me out for a psychiatric review, but they say I'm a psychopath. When I drank, it was easy to talk me into doing just about anything. I was working in Selby at the co-op, and on the weekends we would go out and party. Every time we went out and I got drunk, one of the others would bring up robbing a bank. Each time it would progress just a little bit further until we actually did it. I was no robber. Hell, I just liked to party and chase girls. We were all way in over our heads with this thing. Hell, we were just kids still trying to find our way in this world. Don't think for a second that I'm making light of what we did because I am not. We were just kids and we did do something really bad, but that don't make us some kind of animal. Let the person free of sin be the first to throw a stone. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com Chapter 31. Crossing the Street Eventually, and finally, after a couple months of correspondence with David Feist, I gathered the nerve to ask him those two questions. I took a deep breath, and I asked him if he could tell us why the Zicks had to be killed. Could he tell us what the Zicks said that night? I wrote it down as best I could. I looked at the words over and over. I tried to rephrase it in a few different ways, in a way that might somehow make it all feel, I don't know, what, less tragic? Less heartbreaking? How do you phrase something like that when, really, in the end, it's all just one word, one very tragic question, why? Finally, I sent it off to David Feist, and then I attempted to go on with my daily life in a manner that felt somewhat normal, all along feeling like it wasn't, and it wasn't going to be, until I received his answer. Meanwhile, all I could do was wait. 
This is the Wald family arriving in Zealand by car from Bismarck. And they use those speakers to. Wade and Ellen's grandkids, Robin and her brother Mike, agreed to meet me there one Saturday. With them are Mike's wife, Tracy, and their two grown daughters, Megan and Haley, the great granddaughters of the Zicks. I drove myself down, so I'm not in the car. I asked Megan to do some recording for me with her phone as they pulled into town. I didn't originally consider going to Zealand with them, but during a conversation in Bismarck, Mike, who was nine years old in 76, he mentioned that he had always wanted to go to see the gravel pit where his grandparents had been murdered. Now, I knew all along that if I was to tell this story, I would have to see the gravel pit, but I was a little surprised to hear that Mike wanted to see it. It would all make much more sense to me later. So, we decided we would go to Zealand and find it. As you shall see, we almost didn't find it, but then something, perhaps fate, stepped in. And if we were going to go to Zealand to see the gravel pit, well, we should see Zion Lutheran Church, the bank, the Zick's home, the cemetery, and anything else that might just come our way. The great-granddaughters of Wade and Ellen Zick had never been to Zealand. It was always something the family had planned to do someday. Apparently, that day had finally arrived. We arranged to meet at Zion Lutheran Church. It was at Zion Lutheran, of course, where it had all started when the Zicks didn't show up for church that morning. And it was at Zion Lutheran that the funeral took place three days later. We walk around the building, taking it all in. We find the church organ and the choir section. We lower our voices a little, as people often do when they are in church, some kind of unwritten code of respect for life and death, for God and loved ones past. And then Mike Wald becomes even more quiet. We find him standing at a window. He's looking out of the church and is suddenly a little bit detached from the rest of us. He's not really talking or engaging anymore. I feel a quick pang of nervousness in my gut. Maybe this whole thing was a bad idea. Maybe this day, this story, this podcast is just a bad idea. A tragic story better left untold. And then I realize Mike is not just gazing at nothing. He's looking at a house across the street. It's the house where the Wald family stayed during those first few days and nights. Other people were there too then, of course. Ellen's granddaughter Kim Mammel was there with her brothers, her mother, and of course her father, Jerry Mammel, Ellen's son, the apple of Ellen's eye. And it was in that house that Mike sometimes looked at the bedroom window and wondered if more bad things were going to crawl right through it. I remember suddenly that the nine-year-old Mike Wald didn't go to the funeral. He was held back by the very best intentions of loving parents, an attempt to protect him as any mother or father would want to do. And yet from that house that day, he could see it all taking place. At least 700 strangers to him, sitting, standing, watching outside of the church, all there to say goodbye to his grandma and his grandpa while he stood across the street with his little sister, Robin. 
To my relief, Mike Wald returned to us, and we all got into our cars and headed to our next destination, the Zeeland branch of the McIntosh County Bank, where branch manager Leanne Holzer was waiting for us. She had kindly taken time out from her Saturday to allow Robin and Mike and his family to visit the place where Wade worked for 35 years. Thankfully for me on that day in Zeeland, as we drove towards the bank, I didn't yet know what David Feist's answers were going to be to my two questions. At the time, I was still of the belief or hope that I would reach the summit of that figurative mountain I was climbing. I was going to find and retrieve some missing belongings and pieces and return them to the Walden mammal families. I would help make sense of it all, almost magically. At the time, that's what I thought this story was all about. So, if I had known what David Feist's answers were going to be then, I would have felt the failed mountaineer, one of those who had to turn around just near the summit and confess it just couldn't be done. As for those two questions you were hesitant to ask, I don't really know if I can satisfy your curiosity, but I will try to answer them. On any given day in this country, or even the world, someone does something while stupid drunk. A father beats his kid to death, a kid that he thinks the world of and would never dream of hurting. Or a husband is drunk and fights with his wife, and the next thing he knows, he wakes up in jail and he's told that he killed his wife. Or maybe it's someone out for a good time on a Friday evening with friends, and they have too much to drink, and words are said, punches are thrown, and someone dies. This kind of thing happens every day in this crazy world we live in. So as for the why, that is something I really don't know how to answer, and I guess that there is really no way to answer something like that. The papers that you will read will say that it was something that was planned, even though it wasn't. I guess if I had to say anything, then it would be that I truly don't know. Drinking has a way of twisting reality, and a person will do some really bad things when he is drunk. I wasn't someone growing up that was mean to animals or anything like that, and I wasn't someone that picked on others. Hell, I've always went out of my way to stand up for someone that others picked on. Anyway, I've questioned the why and the how so many times over the years that I can't even begin to count the times. I know that drinking was never good for me. I could be the happy-go-lucky guy one minute and then the asshole the next. I used to wish that I'd wake up and it was all just a bad dream. I don't know how many times I've heard people say that since I've been in here. I guess that all of us wish that we could do things different with the life that we have, but all we have is the memories of things we've done wrong. As for your second question, I don't really remember there being anything said by either of them. I seem to remember that there was something about not letting the vault door close. Greg was outside with Mrs. Zick, so I can't say if they spoke or not. Another thing I kind of remember is a statement about there being some kind of time lock on the little safe inside the big one. You try to play this thing over and over in your head, and you don't know if what you do remember is real or not. I can say that once it was over, it was scared shitless time, and all that any of us could think about was to run. We didn't know where to run, so we just ran. I didn't think for a minute that we would get away. Talk about bumbling, stumbling fools. We were the worst crooks in history. I don't know how well you've gotten to know me over these past few months, or even how you get to know a person just by reading things, but if a person can read another person's character from his words, then just maybe you can see what kind of person I am. 
I'm thankful for David Feist's answers and for his participation in this project. Those answers felt at the time disappointing. There was no answer to why, and unless David's memory returns to him, or unless Greg Huber or Butch Feist break their silence, we won't ever know what Wade and Ellen said at the gravel pit, if anything. In Zeeland that day, we parked right in front of the McIntosh County Bank, and we walked up the steps, the same steps that Wade Zick ascended for the very last time when the Feist brothers led him to the door about 30 minutes before his death. Bank manager Leanne Holzer met us, and she led us inside the building. Oh, <laughs> wow. God, nothing's changed. It's the same, yeah. Years from now, if anyone asks me what this story was about, my brain will have one thing to say, and my heart another. My brain will say it was about a crime and my attempts to understand it, a bank robbery and two homicides, a tragic event in a town named Zeeland and Germans from Russia country. Or maybe my brain will say it was a story about three young men who, when put together in the same place, somehow equaled the end of Wade and Ellen's lives, and if any one of the three had been removed from the equation, it would have never happened. Or my brain will say it was about Milton Wiest, Norb Sickler, and other law enforcement officers who helped solve this crime, this little piece of North Dakota history. It might also suggest it's a story about a custodian carrying a heavy memory, a man who went about his days for years quietly and faithfully sweeping up in the hallways of the Zeeland School, while in a class photo on the wall, Gregory Huber looked down on him as he worked. But my heart will answer the question differently. My heart will say it was a story about the nine-year-old in all of us. The world of a nine-year-old is always just across the street from the adult world. Not a toddler anymore and not yet a teenager, as nine-year-olds we catch a glimpse of our future and attempt to understand the place we will soon be in ourselves. We slip in and out of kiddom seamlessly. We are like little double agents sneaking back and forth across a border, the border between our future as adults and our innocent present as kids, where we know we won't be able to stay forever. Nine-year-olds are the true innocent bystanders in life. They have no say in anything, but are old enough to feel the consequences of everything. Wade Zick was nine years old when his grandfather Eckelberg died. David Feist was nine when his father and uncle died together in an auto accident. Nancy Zick was nine when her adoptive mother, Leah, died of cancer. And Mike Wald was nine years old on July 11, 1976, when his grandparents were taken away. It was inside the bank in Zeeland that day that I understood why Mike Wald wanted to see the gravel pit and the other places in Zeeland. It wasn't just Mike Wald, the 52-year-old father of two grown daughters. It was a part of him, a part of all of us, a dormant nine-year-old yearning to understand. In his case, it was the grandson of Wade and Ellen Zick. It was a boy who, all those many years ago, felt the strongest urge to abandon the safety of childhood to run across the street, to throw open the doors of Zion Lutheran Church and join all the others in saying goodbye to his grandparents, Wade and Ellen Sick. Two weeks after our visit to Zealand, I sat down with Mike Wald and we talked about it. And last time I saw you, we were on Main Street in Zealand. Yep. How's it been since then? You, you had made the comment before we, right before we left, that 
you know, we'll need some time to digest this. And yeah, it was the whole week. Probably there are a couple of things that stuck out in my mind, and and my family and I we talked about it. But the the first has to be for me was was going to the bank. <laughs> I mean, the original entrance was, if I remember correctly, is right there. Yes. Yep. Yep. Oh. <laughs> wow. God, nothing's changed. It's the same. It's the same, yeah. It was like stepping back in time. A lot of things hadn't changed. Um, and uh, I, I remember a lot about that place and being there. The, the, the layout of the bank, the counter. You mind if I, can I go back there? God. It's crazy. I remember, the, gosh. The... You know the safe, um, um, the basement. Remember going down there and, and shoveling coal, and watching Grandpa shovel coal. And there's a there's a basement. There it is. Did you want to see that? Yeah. Okay. Wow. <laughs> was that the same desk that was there when when he worked there? Could he have sat in that desk? You know, and uh, um, it just just a lot of those things. You know, brought probably brought me back closer to the time when we spent a lot of time down there. It was like you're stepping, almost stepping back in time and, and uh, I wouldn't want it any other way. I mean, I don't know you very well, but I felt almost like you kind of became a kid again down there. Yeah, oh yeah. And, and, and going back to the house, you know, it, granted things have changed, it looks different in, in the add-on, but I remember being there as a kid and, and playing outside and, and 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 certain things just brought back uh, a lot of memories of uh, some great times that we we were fortunate enough to spend down there. I remember the garage door. That was that was the same door. Yeah. This is the kitchen, and up above there is is an attic, and we used to play in the attic. Oh wow! And the attic had a small door. It was saying that we we could never let the door close because we'd be locked in. Really? <laughs> yeah, it only had to latch on the outside. After visiting the bank and after walking around the house where the Zicks used to live, we decided it was time for a bite to eat and a beer at the bar. When we got there, I saw Whitey Klein sitting across the street on his golf cart. I asked him if he would join us, and he did. Yeah, they took, took us out there together, and then thought there were a bunch of FBI's out there, and they took Jerry in the one car, me and the other one. And, and for to have Whitey there and really not saying a lot until we ask a question and then he would he would tell a story or he would you know uh, tell us what he remembered and uh, <laughs> it was like okay I'm gonna be here as long as you guys want to be want me to be here and uh, you know it was almost to me it was like he was enjoying us being there and you know maybe it brought I don't want to say a little closure to him too, but you know, the, the part of the family came back. When it came time to go to the gravel pit, the Wald said goodbye to Whitey and we drove northeast of town. We had exact directions to follow, and yet when we got out of our cars and took a look, we didn't see any pit at all. We had heard that it had been filled in, but still, it didn't feel like we were in the right place somehow. 
A farmer was working in a field nearby, driving a tractor, with a flock of birds following him. Suddenly he stopped his tractor, got out, and started walking towards us. I wondered if someone was going to give us a hard time for trespassing. Yep, that was that was amazing. That uh, you know, yeah, yeah, that happened happened for a reason, I think. And As it turned out, from the perch of his tractor, the farmer more or less figured out what we might be looking for. It was pretty windy out there, as you will hear. I remember when I was a little kid, when my dad brought me down here, and I'd ride with him, and he would, you know, kind of tell me the story how it all went, you know. This is Mike Myers of Zealand. So what are the odds that you came by to show us this? Seriously. Well, when I'm out here on a gloomy Saturday afternoon with a million of these stupid birds chasing me around and I see two vehicles over there, I just looked over there and I sat there for a little bit and I was like, well, either it's Schatz's because the Schatz's own land over there or it's somebody looking for the Wade Zick pick. He told us we were close, but the pit was 40 yards or so off the section line, and we couldn't see it due to a growing crop. He led us through the crop and showed us the gravel pit where Wade and Ellen died. So, forgive me, because this chokes me up a little bit sometimes. Okay, I, just, I don't know, I don't know them, but this was, you know, a bad part of history. But, so, there was a tree. There was, like, a tree right here. About right in here. And to my knowledge, this spot. I'm and I know I'm within ten feet. Okay? But it was somewhere along this edge. And this was all I mean, we filled this in in the early two thousands with rock. It's I mean this was fifteen feet deep and people just came out here and dumped stuff in here. But I remember my dad saying how when he came down here after this happened how the tree was splattered with blood you know and I never could really look at that tree so I I never knew the Zix they were, okay. that was before yeah. my right, time right right but I got landlords you know from here to Hague to Venturia whatever and I can't get over how many of these older people are so to this day just I mean, tore up by this. And the, yeah. and the passion that he had about it was, uh, again, goes back to the respect I think that the citizens of Zealand had for, for them. And, uh, and for what, I, I'm going to say for what they did for Zealand. You know, and uh, so, yeah, it was, it was cool. We, you know, fortunate enough to take a few tokens of, of the area with us, a couple rocks, and, yeah. and they're in our backyard now, so. The farmer Mike Myers left us and returned to his work on his tractor. Before we left the gravel pit to travel to our last destination that day, namely the cemetery, I walked back to my car and gave the Wald family a few minutes to themselves at the place where Wade and Ellen died. And as this story comes to an end, I'm going to leave you, too, with your own thoughts, but also with a final thought or two from Mike Wald and his daughters. Thank you for listening and for joining me on this little journey to a tiny town named Zealand. I'm Haley Wald. I am the great-granddaughter of Wade and 
Ellen um, Zeck. And I'm Megan Wald, and I'm the, also the great-granddaughter of Wade and Ellen Zeck. So where are we? In Zeeland, North Dakota. It's our first time here. Kind of neat being here and mm -hmm. knowing everything that has happened in our family. It's kind of cool being back. Yeah. We went to the bank. That was amazing. Yeah. Just being able to see where you were. Our they were. Great grandpa yeah. had worked, and the thing for me, just seeing like my dad's reaction. Yeah. To it was really cool, just yeah. because he. I was gonna ask you about that. Yeah. So what's it like? I mean, did that surprise you? Um. I. It surprised me just because, just of how much he actually remembered. Yeah. And just to see it kind of all coming back to him just throughout the day and him getting emotional was pretty emotional for yeah. me as well. I mean, I think it's pretty interesting that our great grandpa was a teacher and that she's a kindergarten teacher and I'm in my last year of college to be a teacher. Just kind of interesting. A really neat experience all all around. Information overload, yeah. emotionally overwhelming, yeah. but it was a very yeah, neat experience. <laughs> we were out playing in the neighborhood and they were gonna take off and, and dad told Robin that it was the first time that they could remember them leaving without saying goodbye to us. In light of everything, that just kind of, you know, the story never, there wasn't an ending, you know? And maybe the visit to Zealand and some of the people there were, you know, maybe that was the ending. That was their goodbye. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus.
Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.